Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I would say stand up and greet your neighbor, but we're not going to do that today. We may not do that for the next couple of months, um, the way that things are going. But if you're in Kidmo, you can head on out. Um, if you're a guest and you have a second through fifth grader, that's an opportunity for them to have their own teaching, small group, and some things that they do. You're welcome to go see where they're going and pick them up after we're done uh, here together. Um, I'm glad you're here with us. Boy, it is. We... It's almost dangerous going out in public, isn't it? So I'm glad that you guys made it and you took the uh, opportunity to brave all the sickness that's out there. Let's do continue to pray for all those that are sick. We've got one at home who's sick, and we're quarantining him um, so he won't get the rest of us sick. But uh, we are glad that you're here, and I do want to encourage you to sign up for some of the stuff we've got going on 2018, even though we're all still kind of slowly getting into the, the new rhythm of a new year. We have a lot of things coming up, and uh, you can sign up out in the, in the lobby or you can sign up online. Uh, the Valentine's Banquet I'm very excited about, and I don't know if Jack and Cindy are here. I don't, yeah, they're Cindy. Um, they, it was, this was their idea, and this is one of the things I love about it. It was their idea. They uh, have a history of, of baking and cooking and catering and things, and so they wanted to do something for our church and for the church family, and so it was their idea and I just think it's a, a fantastic one. So I hope that you'll join us for that. Even though it's a Valentine's banquet, it is not limited to just couples. It's for everybody. So we hope everybody will come. We're going to have a lot of fun. And um, I hope you'll enjoy that. Uh, as we get started, we're starting a new series. But it's not really just starting a new series. I really hate that, uh, that so many people are out because of sickness and travel and stuff. Because we, this is really, we're starting a new year. And not only are we starting a new year... I believe we're going to be starting a new season as a church, um, and we're just beginning to talk about that now. So I, I am thrilled that you have chosen to be with us, and I hope that you'll hang in over these next several weeks, because what I'm going to be sharing with you is what I believe is not only the overarching call of God for us as a church, but it's the overarching call of God for us as, us as individuals. And when we really understand what the church is supposed to be and how it's supposed to work, the truth is that the church does not create an organizational structure that you just come and plug into. The church is a dynamic living organization made up of people that come together and based on what God is doing in their lives and what God is telling them through his word and through their own time of prayer and meditation, that is the direction and the way that the church functions. And so when we look at uh, our our you know congregation and folks that are here and we see you know we have a lot of special needs teachers and providers within our church, then you can expect that we're probably going to see God send us some families with some special needs kids. Whereas if you don't have that, perhaps they will, perhaps they won't end up at your church. Whenever you have a lot of creative people, then you tend to have a lot of creative things going on in the church. And when you don't, then maybe things don't pop as much. It doesn't mean the substance isn't there. But it just depends. The direction of the church often goes the way that the organism is built. And as we understand how God forms the church, he brings into the church the people that he wants to be there for them to function as a body together. Where I have a life, you have a life, you're not going to go to work for me. And I'm not going to go to work for you. If you call me up and say, I'm not feeling it today, Mark, can you fill in for me at work today? I'm going to say, no, get up and go to work. You're not going to do that for me, but in the church and in the body, we are relying upon each other. 
And whatever God is doing in one of us, He wants to do with the rest of us. And that is one of the beautiful things about being a part of a community is it's not about any one person or any group of people. It's about us all and what God is doing in our lives. And so as we go through this, I want you to begin processing. And and this is a great time to do it because at the beginning of a new year is when we start thinking about new things, right? How many of you have some sort of New Year's resolution? Either do or did. Right? We're a weekend. All right. We're already a weekend, which means they're probably most of them are already broken. I, I, I wrote a, a post, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. I went into the gym and it was like everything was full. It's never been that way. I've been a member there for almost a year and it was, it's never been full until, you know, New Year's Eve. It's like everybody's getting early on their resolutions. Well, now we're two weeks in and it's empty again. So, um, you know, as you start thinking about these resolutions, the reason that we come up with these, and Deidre and I used to have a consistent conversation when we lived a lot farther from family. When we lived a lot farther from family, we would drive in for hours. It would take us hours to get in to see family. We would have ongoing conversations in the car that was basic, it would basically go like this. What's going well? And what's not? Do you all ever have those conversations? If you have never had that conversation as a couple, I want to encourage you to do that today. What's going well and what's not? And when we begin to look at those two questions, it helps to shape where do we need to start shifting in a new year? Now, as Christians, we don't just have these times that come up, these seasons that we begin to think about shifting into new directions. Because the problem with following Christ is he has never laid out the destination and said, once you get there, just hang out a while. Jesus has never said that. And the consistent call that he has given us is one that we see in his first invitation to the first disciples, the first apostles was this, simply follow me. Now, I don't know if you all have ever caravaned with someone I caravan with our family many times, and when I say my family, my extended family, and my brother-in-law is one of the worst people to follow. Do you, anybody have one of those? Here's what happens with my brother-in-law. I love him to death. We're great friends. We have a lot of fun together. I love him to death, but I will not follow him because here's what happens. If I get behind him and he's leading the way, he slows down to about 10 miles below the speed limit. And I, it just drives me nuts. And so what do I do? We can't, we're never going to get there this way. I pull around and I decide I'm going to take the lead. And then he slows down 20 miles below the speed limit. And then I can't find him. So what do I have to do? I gotta slow down. Talking about, where are you? Where are you? Yeah, you know. It's not always easy to follow someone. But when we begin talking about following Jesus, he never says, this is where we're going. Let's get there, and then we'll hang out. There's always the consistent call to continue to follow. And as we do this, I want you to see and I want you to know, and the reason that our series is called Next is because whenever you know Christ and whenever you are following him, there is always a next. Always a next. Now, no matter where you've come from, no matter where you are right now, 
No matter how many mistakes you think you've made in life or how many detours you wish you hadn't taken, wherever you are, there is always a next when we follow Christ. So what I want to encourage you with today is that we have an opportunity to follow him, but it is not always comfortable. And I'm going to be asking you in the coming weeks, what are some ways that God is leading you to follow him? And what are some things he is saying to you that is calling us as a church together to follow him? In Hebrews 11.6, one of the verses you're going to hear throughout the next several weeks says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him, talking about God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists, that he rewards those who, what? Seek him. God rewards those who seek him. One of the founding principles that we had for our church 10 years ago when we began meeting as a church and and began praying about what we will be as a church was this phrase, and you've probably seen it. If you've been here a while, you've heard it before. It's this phrase that says literally, come as you are. Come as you are. We didn't come up with the phrase. Other people have said it, but we wanted to be a place that no matter where you come from, no matter where you are, no matter what your life looks like, no matter how much you have to offer or how much you need from others, you can come and you can be welcome and you can be a valued part of our community. Come as you are. Ten years ago, one of those defining things were the ways that we dress, which is not really an issue anymore. It was whether or not you had tattoos or not, which is not really an issue for many people anymore. There were all kinds of things that can I come when I don't look like everybody else that goes to church. And with Jesus, the answer is always, I would really prefer it if you didn't look like the people that go to church. And so as we look at what God is doing within our lives, he is asking us, are you still willing to follow me And he will accept you exactly where you are. But even though we say it, we say it here often, come as you are. It's important that we don't stay that way. Uh, We're talking about tattoos. That's okay. You don't have to go remove your tattoos to hang out with us. That's. But inside. Where you are in your faith, where you are in the way that you're walking and living your life. Don't stay where you are right now. What I love about my relationship with Christ and what I I think many of you do as well is that God will meet you similarly where you are, but he literally loves you too much to leave you there. You are not right now in your life at the place you are supposed to be forever. You are right now in your life where you are right now in your life. Doesn't that make sense? That's where you are. It makes a lot of sense. That's where you are. For some of us, we're so busy. We have so much going on. Our routine is so jam-packed that we literally believe we are the same people we were a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, because we've never stopped to consider, is there something else that I'm supposed to become? And the truth is, is that we very easily become comfortable in the lives that we're living, and that we will not hear what God is drawing us to. And I believe God is drawing you and drawing me, drawing us towards something. And that is going to be our next. Every person in this room has a next. You have a next. She has a next. He has a next. They have a next. We have a next.
No matter where you've been or where you are right now, there is always a next. I want you to say that with me now. There is always a next. Say that. Say it one more time, but give it some oomph and some livelihood. That sounds fantastic. I want to share a story with you in Scripture. It's a story that you're probably familiar with. But I want to show you how easy it is to get stuck when God is drawing us to a bigger, better next. And when I say bigger, I don't mean like you're going to have a bigger, better job. You're going to have a bigger, better house. You're going to have a bigger, better car. We're going to have a bigger, better church. What I mean is it is closer to where God wants us to be. In this story... Well, let's just begin in Exodus chapter 1. I want you to remember, remember when we did our study of Joseph last year, and we looked at the incredible way that God worked years in advance to bring his people that he had promised to care for a place to live during an an extreme drought. And as we looked at the story of Joseph, Joseph came in as a slave, and he ended up as the head over Egypt just under Pharaoh. And in that time, Joseph was eventually reconciled with his family. His family came, and they began to prosper in Egypt. Once they began to prosper, they grew and grew and grew. Eventually, Joseph would die, and his responsibilities would pass on to somebody else. And over time, they had grown to a nation of over a million people. And God was going to beckon them to enter into their next But they weren't certain they were ready or wanted to. As we talk about where we're headed as a church, I believe that 2018 could hold some significant adjustments, changes, and directions for where we are headed. Not that we are not going to be a place where you can come as you are. But if we're following him, then he is always beckoning us for our next as well. We read the story. This is after Joseph, Joseph has died, and it goes on to say that People did not even know who Joseph was at this point of of history, at this point in time. I want you to listen to what's happening, how God responds, and then we're going to look at how they respond to what God is doing. Chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. It's an interesting part of this story that if you don't read the whole story, you don't see all that's going on. Verse 13 says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here we have a people who have grown under the the kindness and the generosity of Pharaoh under the leadership of one of their own, Joseph. And as they have continued to grow, as they have continued to spread, and as their families continue to enjoy this relationship in Egypt, something changes. Pharaohs die. New pharaohs come into power. Kings change control. And as that happened, they began to look at the Israelites as people that could not only 
help them in some ways as slave labor, but they could also hurt them if they ever organized against them. And so as they began to take on this new role as slaves and under the oppression of the Pharaoh who wanted to try to keep a thumb on them and keep them controlled and keep them docile and keep them moving in the direction Egypt wanted them to move to. It says in chapter 2, verse 23, years passed and that king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. I love the way that the New Living Translation puts this. He knew it was time to act. Is it possible that right now in your life, whether you have been praying for God to do something or not, Is it possible God is looking down at you on your life, on our church, saying it is now time to act? Now, we aren't slaves. We're not oppressed. We're not here under some compulsion that we have to be here. We've chosen to be here together. But is it possible that as God looks down over us, he sees not just where we are, but where he wants to lead us? And he says it's time to act. In all of life, no matter how good or bad things are, there is always a next. And this is so crucial to to grasp this idea and this concept because some people reach a point in their lives where they get stuck. They stop. They don't know how to move on to the next thing because things are what they are. And I, don't, I just can't imagine how they can ever get any better. I just think this is the way it's going to be. But it's never the end of the line. The only end of the line is when we draw our last breath. And even then, guess what? Our next breath will be in heaven with God. There's always a next. And when you begin to look at your life and say, this is it. This is all it's going to be. This is the peak of my life. Or sometimes we say, what was the peak of my life? Right? As we get older, sometimes we think, oh, the good days are behind us. I saw, I saw a meme the other day. It said, now that I'm, or when I was turning 40, although for me it would be 45, I felt like I was 20 until I hung out with other 20-year-olds and I realized I was 45, right? You have those moments? You know, I feel young until I hang out with young people. Then I don't even want to hang out with young people anymore, right? Because they just wear you out. You just watch them. They wear you out. You think, oh, it's 9 o'clock. It's time for bed. You know, that was what my parents did. That's not what I did. That was what my parents did. It's easy to look back on another time. Perhaps you had a great job, a perfect job, the exact job you wanted to have, and you were making good money, and for whatever reason, that job went away. And you think the good times are gone. Maybe you've never had that good job, and you think, you know, God's just, he's just not seeing me. He's ignoring me. He's not helping me. I'm alone. I'm never going to get anywhere. This is as far as I'm going to go. For the Israelites, over generations, they began to become used to being subservient to oppressors. They began to be comfortable. Now, what's interesting is that they always had the power 
to overcome the king of Egypt. That's exactly why the king of Egypt did this, because they were so vast and numerous. They were hard, strong workers. They could have overtaken the king had they wanted to, but it's interesting that they didn't. Instead, they just stayed and they worked. They stayed and they worked. But they began to cry out to God, and as God looked at them and God saw where they were, he recognized, I have a next for you. But what was going to happen in the next 40 years, it was going to take 40 years to prepare them for what that next truly looked like. In Exodus chapter 3, we see the call to Moses. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a land that is good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's his, their next. That's the next thing that they, he is drawing them to. He, he is inviting them to. When he says, I'm going to act, I'm going to not only remove the oppression from you, I'm going to take you into a place that is paradise for you. I'm going to bring you out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, the reason he refers to them as his children, if you'll remember, was because they all come from a common ancestry. Abraham is the founding patriarch in which God said, I have a place for you to go if you will follow me. And if you will do that, then I will prosper you and you will have more descendants than the number of stars that you can count in the sky. And he passed that promise on to Abraham's sons and their sons and their sons and their sons. Until this people now, God has remembered, I made a covenant with you. You are my people. And I have a next in store. Now for us today, I don't know if anyone in this room is of Jewish heritage. But that call is not just limited to those Israelites. But now the children of God are anyone that calls on him. Anyone that recognizes Jesus as their Savior. Anyone who has repented and say, forgive me for my sins. We are all his children now. And as he saw their oppression and had a next, how much more, if he sees us where we are and we're comfortable, how much more will he even have a next? Because we don't always recognize that we need to move. God loved the Israelites, and as we look at them right where they were, even though they had nothing to offer him. I don't know about you, but I struggle at times within my own faith thinking, if I am doing good things that I know God wants me to do, he is happy with me, and he is working in a positive way in my life. If I am not, I'm a little afraid of what he might do. Does anybody ever struggle with those feelings and thoughts within their own minds? So we look at the Israelites, they have literally nothing to offer God, and yet he wanted to be there with them in their discomfort. God's inviting us. He's remembering the covenant. He's remembering 
that you are my people. He is going to remember you. And it may be that if you are stuck right now, it may not be that God is ignoring you. It may just be that you have not yet accepted the call of the next. Which is something we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. Just like God loved the Israelites, God loves you right where you are. I want you to imagine that He loves you too much to leave you there. So this is hard for us. Because our egos make us want to believe that we have reached some level that is greater than it needs to be. So that others would look at us and say, gosh, they are so much better than I am. They are smarter and they're more successful and they talk better and they have better faith. And there's something about our egos that makes us want to believe we're on top of our game. Where as Scripture says, you know what? When you feel that you're on top of your game, you're not even close. It is when your weakness that you are made strong. But God still loves us where we are. He loves you where you are. But He loves you too much to leave you there. Where is it, perhaps, that God is drawing you? That truly, honestly seeking Him is taking you somewhere? When we look through the rest of the story, it's amazing what God does in order to liberate the Israelites. And so as we look through the plagues, there were ten plagues, and eventually the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is going to let them go. First one was turning the Nile into blood, then frogs came on and covered the land, which you know I never felt like was truly a plague. Because frogs are kind of fun to watch, aren't they? You know, they're kind of cute. And, you know, you see the little tree frogs, and they just look like they're just looking at you. You know, of course, I don't know what it would look like to be covered with frogs. The next one was the plague of gnats or lice. That would be a pretty bad one. I wouldn't want that at all. Then flies covered the land. Then livestock, the Pharaoh's livestock began to be to uh, fl- not to cease to flourish, then boils. Moses and Aaron were supposed to take some burned up wood and cast it into the wind, and God was going to take it and spread it out over all of Egypt. And every Egyptian that it touched, they would have boils break out all over them. That's pretty bad. Then hail that would destroy their crops, and then whatever the hail didn't destroy, locusts would come and eat all of their crops. Then three days of darkness, which some of us would be okay with if that meant we got three days of sleep. But in their case, life would grind to a halt. And then finally, the death of the firstborn of everyone who did not have the blood of a Passover lamb over their doorpost. Every family, every beast of the field, every animal, their firstborn would die. And it was in that moment that Pharaoh would finally let them go. But not only would he let them go, but he would give the wealth of Egypt to the Israelites. Now, if you're an Israelite in that moment, and you are walking as a nation out of Egypt with all of their wealth, and you have just been oppressed, just treated like you have no value, no human value at all, you're going to feel pretty good about God, aren't you? You're going to say, God, wow, that's really amazing what you have done. We've seen these amazing works that you have done. Is it possible that you could live through that and ever question God's ability to do something? Is it possible? Yes. 
because that's what they did. So as they leave, I want to introduce to you, if you've not looked at these before, the times that they decide it was better to be a slave in Egypt than to be on this next that God has prepared for us. Our natural reaction to following God is always, always to stay where we are. There is just something about us that just feels like life is supposed to just kind of roll along, isn't it? We're just supposed to kind of get in a rhythm, and we're just supposed to do life. And and even if we don't agree that that is true, let's be honest, if we look at our lives and our schedules, our schedules dictate that that is true. We like for things to be similar. We like for things to be comfortable. We like for things to be that which we expect. And those things that change it become uncomfortable. Our natural reaction is to stay where we are when God is beckoning us to go somewhere with him because it will cost us something to go to this next. Now, when we look at the story of the Israelites, the great thing is, is we know where that's eventually going to go. They're eventually going to go conquer the promised land and flourish there to where they're even there today. We know that's where they're going to go. The problem with our own lives is that we don't see the end of the story. We don't see the fulfillment of the next. We have to trust and have faith that by seeking him, he will take us to the next. But even then, we sometimes struggle because we want to tell God what the next ought to look like, don't we? That's why so much of our prayer has to do with God. This is what's going on. I need you to do A, B, or C. Let's leave every other option off the table. I need, these are the directions I need us to move into. And that's often why God doesn't answer our prayers. Because we aren't asking him to lead us where he would take us. We're asking him to lead us where we want to go. And we are not the best people to determine where that is. Our natural reaction The following God is to stay where we are. Why? Because it's comfortable. Because it's convenient. But more than that, it's because it is known. It's known. I know what this is. I know how to function here. I know how to live here. I know where to go spend my money and spend my time. I I know what to expect is going to happen tomorrow when I get up and how my day is going to go and then how I'll go home and do this or that or the other. I know. It's known. The known is always going to try to tie you and anchor you to the present when God is consistently going to say, break free of the known because the unknown is where I am at. He's beckoning us not to stay where we are. Here's four four experiences after they have seen all that God has done through these plagues, beginning in Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, this is when they have left, and they've come up to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is, is in front of them. There's no passing it, and the Egyptian army is coming in behind them with all of their weapons, and they think, we're, we're dead, we're done. This is over. This was the shortest uh, escape ever. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? I mean, they are some of the most sarcastic people you have ever seen. Why can't we just be buried in Egypt? Why do we have to come all the way out here to get killed? 
They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Now remember, they've been crying out for rescue. Why did you bring us here? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. If you go on and read the next few verses, what you're going to see is God's delivering them by parting the Red Sea. They walk through, and as they get to the other side, the Red Sea closes in over the Egyptian army, destroying it. And then we see the song of Moses, which is the national song in which they all began to praise God for all that he had done. He had rescued them. You would think, now they believe. Now they see that God is trustworthy to take them to their next. Now they're ready to go to the next step until we get to Exodus 15. And they run out of water. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. This is literally like one month later. One month later, this happens. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? How often do we just grumble because we don't see what God is doing? The next one is when they had no food. And God begins to provide manna for them to eat. It says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of them of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, we will return to what is known even when it is oppression rather than accepting where God is leading us. The fourth time is when spies were sent out and God said, now's the time. I'm going to give you the promised land. And so they sent spies out and the spies came back and all but two spies said, oh, it's too hard. It's too tough. The people are too big. There's no way that we can do it. And God says, well, if you don't trust me and you don't have faith, after all that I've done for you, then all right, let's wait even longer and you'll wander for 40 years before you enter into the promised land. Which is an interesting thing because a group of people said, oh no, God, wait, no, no, we're sorry, we really want to go. And so a group of people broke off and tried to take the land and every single one of them were killed because they didn't trust God. It says, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. 
And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's form a party and let's go back. I don't know what they're expecting when they get there that Pharaoh's going to go, oh, it's good to see you. Come on in. I don't really think that's going to be his response. But it just goes to show you how much we will go back to something because it's familiar when God is drawing us into something that's unknown. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all their congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, which he's already said he's going to do. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone, said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared to the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the things that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a great a nation greater and mightier than they. On and on, the people are going to question him. And what we see in this story is that God is constantly inviting them on a, journey, on a journey, just as he is inviting you on a journey, but we do have to accept it. We do have to seek it. We do have to say, I want to know where you're leading me, where you're leading us. I want to know where this is going to go. I mean, what's the next step? And as we do this, we remember Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. The Israelites weren't seeking God. They were seeking the known. You are very good at the known. You live in it every single day. It's familiar. It's comfortable. It's convenient. It may not be perfect. You may have things you want to change about it. But often what we want to change about our lives is minuscule compared to what God wants to do in us. We also want a straight line. We want to know where we headed. Now, how do we get there the fastest way possible? And and it's going to cost us the least amount. How do we just go straight there? But that is not how God works. And amazingly, in the next couple of books in scripture is a whole bunch of laws which are not just laws to live by but there are ways to understand how to live with people how to love people how to follow god's principles we find that in leviticus and deuteronomy where they're beginning god is showing them this is what it looks like to live as my people but it took 40 years in the desert before they were ready to receive that they had to learn to trust god they had to learn to follow god They had to learn that God always had a next step for them and that they were never just going to stop and be done. That's the same for your life. It is sometimes in the journey that we discover the people that God wanted us to be 
For them, it was a 40-year journey before they came to that realization. I hope it won't be 40 years for us that we feel we know that we are the people he wanted us to be. So I look at the Israelites, I truly believe they had two key problems. Two key problems that you and I are, are in danger of, of also uh, repeating. The first one is that they were trapped by what they knew and not what God could do. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it does, so that's pretty cool. They were trapped by what they knew, not what God could do. They knew oppression. They knew that they had a home there. They knew that they had food there. They knew their life was terrible there, but at least they had a home and they had food and they had water. They had memories in their homes. One of the things we have never done is if someone donates money to a certain thing, we never put a plaque on stuff. Uh, You would be surprised how many relationships have been broken not here, but in other churches where I've served, where I have said, we don't want to put plaques on stuff. And it has taken us like a, a personal affront that if I donate towards something, I want a plaque somewhere that I gave it. And the reason that I've never been a fan of plaques on stuff is because a plaque says, here we stake in the ground that this is where we are. But what if God moves us somewhere else? We build plaques to say how great things are right now or how great things were. But that's not where the follower of Jesus lives. The follower of Jesus lives, where is God leading me now? We have memories in different places we've met in worship. You have memories in the homes in which you have lived. I still think back to the home in which our kids, for the most part, spent most of their childhood. And we have lots of memories there. We're not in that house anymore, but I occasionally drive by that house just to relive some of those memories. You probably do that too. Sometimes when I go visit my family in Knoxville, there are a few key places that when I was a kid, our family would go to often. And I would just go to be there to remember those past times. One place that we would go to, which may seem kind of silly, is there was an outlet mall before outlets were cool. I mean, outlet malls were kind of loser malls back then, but now they're cool. Everybody wants to go to the outlet mall. Now the loser mall is the regular mall. But, but back then, outlet malls were not cool. We had an outlet mall, small mall there in uh, Knoxville, and right in the minor, middle, it was, it was like a plus sign. That's the way it was made with four wings. And right in the middle was a generally an arcade or some kind of really sweet food vendor or something like that. And sometimes mom and dad would let us get something. And I just thought that was the best thing ever. Most of the time we were just dragging around while they looked at stuff, you know. But but we spent so much time in there that as an adult I look back and remember, even though at times I was miserable, I loved those times with our family together. And now there's a big store there. It takes up the whole mall. And so I, I remember walking up into it one time, and I could walk and see the, the floor was still the concrete floor separated by brick. And I could make out where the center section was and where the main aisles were. And I remember just this kind of flood of feeling. I felt like I was there again. Those are wonderful memories to have, and they're wonderful things to cherish and But at the same time, if I live in those memories and not live in where God is drawing me, I am missing in what God is doing right now. 
They were trapped by what they knew. I see so many people that are trapped by what they know. This is just all I know to do. Well, then you need to learn another way to do. You need to seek help. You go back to school. You need to go see a counselor. You need to talk to somebody else who is somewhere other than where you are. It's the reason that we have the phrase, birds of a feather flock together. It's why we always encourage our kids, be careful who you spend the most time with. Be welcome to all. But be selective about the people that you invest in most and that they invest in you. Because... That will become what you know. And if you're always hanging around people who are always stuck, you will stay stuck too. They were trapped by what they knew, not what God could do. The second thing is that they lost sight of what could be and instead settled for what is. And it doesn't feel like settling most of the time. It doesn't feel like we're giving up something. It just feels like we're just living where we are. But then we fail to recognize that God may be drawing us somewhere else. On our journey, it's not so much that we are headed for a destination. As much as it is, is that we are following the one in front of us. And that destination is likely not going to look like a straight line. We've all talked and we've all decided this is where where we're supposed to go. And and now we're going to go do that. It's not often how God works. Instead, he is just constantly showing us the next. Just as the Israelites wandered for 40 years, we may at times wander in our own lives. We may wander as a church. That's often how God prepares us for our next. No matter where you have been, no matter where you are, God is going to be there. He loves you. He's drawing you and inviting you. And all that you've experienced up to this moment is just a portion of what your life is going to look like. You can either just continue to go along in the ways you've done everything so far, or you can say, God, I'm ready to go where you lead me to go. That requires us seeking him. That requires us listening to him. That requires... Time in his word and time in prayer and meditation. It means that we spend time together thinking, how do I sacrifice and give so that we can see this? Because when God calls us to our next, one thing we're going to talk about is that it often requires a sacrifice. A sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of comfort, sacrifice of what's known. And while some of you may say, you know what, I love new stuff. You know, the number one way to sell a product is to say it's new or improved because we love new stuff. It's not just about seeking the new and improved. It's just about going where God takes us. And there are times like when you run out of water or you run out of food or you're backed up to a river and an army's on your backside that that next doesn't feel so good. And it is our faith and our trust that we say, God has got this if I will just keep following him. That he continues to move us. The last two things I want to share with you today, or just reshare with you, is that Jesus meets you right where you are, but he loves you too deeply to leave you there. 
He loves you too deeply to let you just continue where you are. Now, where you are may feel really good. You may be in a really good place in your time of growing and knowing God. It doesn't mean that that's bad. It just means that God is still calling you somewhere. He's going to meet you right where you are, but he loves you too deeply to leave you there. I want you to imagine that. Now, for those that feel stuck, this has a whole different meaning. Because when we feel stuck, we begin to lose hope that we can go anywhere. God loves you where you are, and he loves you too deeply to leave you there. If you will trust him. All of us have got to answer the question of where is our hope and where are we heading and what is our faith telling us. We all are coming from somewhere. We all are somewhere. But that is not who we should be from now on. Where have you come from? But more importantly, let me ask you the question. Where are you going? As a church in these coming weeks, we're going to continue to talk about different aspects of going after that next. And as I've said before, we're going to be asking you to share with us as a community what God is showing you. Now, it's very possible God is showing you a next in addition to our next. Very possible. And if that's the case, then praise the Lord. But as God shows you part of our next, which is what I believe he does because we are the body of Christ, we are a body made of individual members functioning together, as God begins to show you about our next, we're going to ask you to share that, which means you should be seeking God, which I know is one of those key phrases like, I don't really know how to do that. I hope over these last few weeks you have seen and learned more on how do we seek God, how do we hear from God. And, and part of that, if you're, not, if you're at, at just ground zero, I, I'm just starting out. I don't really know where I'm headed. I don't really know what I know yet. I, just, I, I know I want to be on this journey, but I don't really know what it looks like. That, that, it looks like spending time in God's Word repeatedly. Not because you have to. You see, there's a very big difference in spending time with God because you have to versus you get to, right? If you're dating somebody and they spend time with you because it's a class assignment, not because they want to spend time with you, how much longer will you be dating them? Probably not long. But when they choose to be with you, then it feels special. Just like with God, we, we at times go, well, I'm going pr- to pray because I said I was going to pray. And the preacher said I was supposed to pray, God, I need you to fix some stuff. And that's how it goes. Because we haven't stopped to see and to love and become intimate with the one we are praying to. Because once we do that, our prayer changes. But if we are starting out, just starting in the journey, Start with time in God's Word because it begins to open up and reveal to you what God does, how He works, and how to find and know Him. But it can't end there. Many times it's going to look like you spending time praying and saying, God, show me. And many times what God is going to show you in your time of prayer, He's going to show you other people and what's going on in their lives because God doesn't want us just praying about us. We're not supposed to be self-focused prayers. We're supposed to be Praying for others, we're supposed to be lifting up others, we're supposed to be seeking what God wants and, and, and how do we help others, not just how do I t- get my needs taken care of. 